We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin, I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Hi, welcome to the This Does Not Compute podcast. I'm Caitlin Chin. I'm your guest host for this episode, and I'm here today with Di Cook, who is a visiting fellow with the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Di, thank you so much for being here today with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat about all the crazy things we're going to talk about in this in this podcast. I know. I'm super excited to chat as well, especially about your work on artificial intelligence and deep fakes. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been seeing more and more synthetic media just popping up on my social media feeds and online. I don't know if you saw the photo of Pope Francis in a white puffer Balenciaga jacket. <laughs> I, I saw I saw something like this maybe a couple of weeks ago. And I, I mean, I didn't really think too much about it. I was like, oh, Pope Francis in a cool jacket. And then all of a sudden news came out that this was actually a, a fake image. Pope Francis was not actually wearing a white puffer jacket. And it actually stirred quite a bit of controversy. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what deep fakes are out there and how, how are they currently affecting the way that people interact with social media or the internet? Yeah, it's there's so much going on in this space. It's really it's kind of getting hard to keep track in a way. So synthetic media is a digital media and including images, audio, video, or text that's created or manipulated by AI models known as generative AI. They're also known as general purpose AI systems, since these models can be used in many ways to create types of media. These types of models are relatively new and have only really been used sort of in the public space since I think to the end of 2017. So it's been crazy to see how this has all accelerated even in the last you know, five years. And we're definitely seeing a lot of instances where because this technology has just become so much more sophisticated and easier for anybody to use that we're seeing examples like what you'd mentioned with Pope Francis. I don't know if you've seen the uh, images that of Trump being arrested that were shared I think last week. But at this point, it's almost getting, it's almost impossible to keep track of these deep fake instances where, you know, five years ago, you'd see when it would be a big deal. And now it's, there's just so many at this point. Obviously, I look into this a lot. So I'm sure my recommender systems and all my social media um, are probably biased towards sharing this with me. But, you know, I see examples of people using deep fakes to manipulate videos of like internet celebrities, of other politicians around the world, of, just general funny videos or, or images, it's really becoming embedded throughout all of the, the online space. And it's so good. It's really hard to keep track of what's real or not anymore. Yeah. So who are these people who are creating these images of celebrities or Donald Trump or the Pope? Are these technologies, I mean, who's using them and, and why? So they're using them for tons of people are using them for many different purposes. So we're seeing folks who are just really big hobbyists and really enjoy face swapping celebrities like Tom Holland and Tobey Maguire and 
Spider-Man deepfakes. We're seeing people doing it just for fun. And when we think of using like the Dolly or Stable Diffusion, so the text-to-image software that just sort of exploded last year. You know, everyone's been using chat GPT. I think everybody, I think even my, yeah, my grandmother at once, which is like, you know, that's when you know it's gone mainstream, like when your grandparents start sharing AI things with you. Then you're also seeing a huge explosion in the commercial space. Mm-hmm. There's an absolute gold rush going on. It's Pin Valley where I think everybody is now investing in generative AI. And so that means there are a number of different applications for that across the board. We're seeing people creating digital avatars. We're seeing it used a lot and increasingly used in the voice acting community or in advertisements. We're seeing it for entertainment. So K-pop, I think now has some idol groups that are synthetic idols and they're not real people, but still wildly popular. We're even seeing it being used in some what I would call very Black Mirror-esque ways. For example, one company is, I think, in Korea, Deep, it's Deep Brain, is now offering services where you can share digital data about your deceased loved ones, and they will recreate them for you so you can have conversations with them after they've passed, which is a really wild example of how people are using this kind of tech today. That is wild, especially since, like you said, this technology really kicked off around 2017, which is only only five years ago in the grand scheme of things. That's not very much time. Where do you see these technologies going maybe five or 10 years from now? Man, I, I think we're going to see them embedded everywhere. And I think they'll become very much a part of everyday life for better or for worse. So, you know, we're starting to see social media companies using them. I don't know if you saw some of the most recent voice and face filters on TikTok. Those are definitely AI generated. Mm-hmm. People's iPhones now and their FaceTime, they have deep fake technology to manipulate, manipulate your eyes to make it look like you're looking at the, the screen rather than somewhere else. Just I wish I had realized that earlier. You can turn that off, but it's just becoming you know, embedded everywhere and it's becoming used for so many different things which has its both both its benefits and its drawbacks, you know, because there's really cool ways we can use this. There are also people who are abusing this tech. And as this tech gets easier to use, you know, there's a concern that more people could use it for, for, for malicious reasons as well. Could you talk more about those malicious reasons or those risks? I feel like most people, when they hear deep fakes, they think, oh, funny videos or fun face swaps. But I mean, like you said, there are also potential downsides to this technology. What have you either seen so far or what do you anticipate becoming a problem in the future? Yeah, so I think the the most realized downside we're seeing right now is that the majority of this tech is unfortunately being used to create non-consensual pornography. And it's unfortunately been a inherent part of how people are using, have been using this kind of technology since it's became publicly available back in 2017. So actually the term deepfake comes from a the name of the subreddit where people were in 2017, 2018, were sharing explicit videos female celebrities having their face to swap with pornography. Mm-hmm. And that whole area or that whole, I guess, use of non-consensual pornography has really grown. So today, I think 99% of all deep fakes online are non-consensual pornography, which is pretty horrible. And they're getting easier to create, easier to disseminate. And that doesn't really seem to be going away anytime soon. You know, and that's a good indicator of how that kind of technology can be used in other malicious ways. 
Mm-hmm. Increasingly, there's also a lot of concerns around how this how this kind of tech can be used in ways that create a national security risk. Mm-hmm. So, for example, how could we use how how might deepfakes be used to destabilize like a political election, mm-hmm. or be used to exacerbate conflicts or civil tensions in various ways? And then also generally how it could be used to distract or, or deceive adversary or for espionage pushes. So there's a whole variety of ways how we're seeing this already being used maliciously and how we're increasingly concerned with the use in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could definitely see how deep fakes could potentially be weaponized, especially since, I, I mean, some of them are very realistic. Like if you see a person with, I, I, I don't know, with like a like a cat like morphed onto their face you can assume that's probably some sort of filter but if we see a very very realistic deep fake video or if you see other types of misinformation online it's sometimes very very hard to tell and I would also imagine that deep fake videos disproportionately impact people based on factors like gender um, especially when it comes to non-consensual intimate imagery as well so Speaking of the potential gendered or disparate impact, I remember reading an article written by Heather Tall Murphy of Slate about a month ago, where she was trying to figure out why deep fake artificial intelligence photos had very like funny hands that did not always look realistic. But what she was actually finding, she used several programs to generate fake art of happy couples, but she found that when she tried to generate art of happy couples, these couples were almost universally white. And only after entering prompts like low-income couples were, was she able to generate images of more racially diverse couples. But she also found that even within all of these prompts, within all of these images, very, very few couples were interracial as well. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why, why this might be. What biases have we seen within the development of artificial intelligence, of, within deepfakes? Um, how does that potentially reflect some of the disparities that we've seen in society so far? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So issues around how training data can bias models is a huge problem and a very big concern for synthetic media. And we're seeing this both in images, we're also seeing this in text, we'll come to that in a minute. You're definitely right. So the way a lot of this, because these models need so much information to train at what they mostly do are, are use these unstructured and publicly available giant DSS phones that have very little, you know, there's, there's very little vetting or, or review beforehand. It's all just sort of ingested. But what we're seeing is because of that, and because of sort of minimal review beforehand, that the these models tend to reflect sort of general biases and issues you see sort of in, in the online space. And so this issue of disproportionate representation of white people mm-hmm. is definitely been a thing we've been seeing in sort of how a lot of these models tend to think about representing people in images. We've seen that this is the same, kind of like the flip side in some ways of facial recognition issues, where it, a lot of models, and this is now being addressed more, but especially a couple of years ago, a lot of AI models had facial recognition models were much better at identifying white people because the training data they were using was disproportionately of white faces. And so we're seeing these, again these similar biases in synthetic media where they the data they're using is not necessarily representative 
you can be biased or skewed. In some cases, you know, what we're seeing also is that it includes explicit images, which is not great when you're thinking about generating things like pornography. Yeah. Easier. Or it's just in terms of text, the underlying models, generative AI for things like chat GPT are the same as what we're using for creating fake images. And the issues of what we're seeing with, with things like ChatGPT is that it's pulling information off the internet and you know you can't trust what's on the internet, but it's treating as so it will get things factually incorrect. But seem very, very convincing, which is you know another mm -hmm. huge concern. Yeah, it poses kind of a weird ethical question too. Like on one hand, we want to mitigate to get rid of any algorithmic bias that's based on potentially flawed training set data. But on the other hand, like even if we could potentially get AI to a place where it's 100% accurate, I don't know if accurate's the right word, but like, do, do we want that either? Do we want deep fakes that are, are super super realistic, super hyper presentable to the public. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's just... Yeah, I completely agree. So we've been seeing this in, so as, as we're saying with these AI generation, you know, numerous studies, including a study we've just recently run, have shown that AI is much better at creating white male faces uh -huh. than any other type of face, right? Because that's the amount of, it just for its training data, it generally has a lot more white male faces to, to learn from. And you know, again, this, this double-edged sword on one hand, you're going, oh, well, that's that's not great. That's not fair. Like it, we should have, it should be just as good at generating other types of faces. But equally, on the other hand, you're going, oh, if this is being used for, for malicious reasons, do we really want them? Right. Um, I know you, yeah, I go, it, it's it's a tricky. I think, you know, I think with application versus or the, right. the content and what you want is different for both. Right. It's like equal opportunity misinformation. <laughs> yeah. Um, equal opportunity you, malicious use, I guess. Yeah. Do you do you yeah. think that there is a place in society for these technologies, whether AI generated images or video or text or art, or or do you think that the use of these technologies will always inherently create potential harms or potential risks? So I think there's there's a lot of great benefits to this kind of technology being used. It really lowers the barrier in terms of creating interesting, customizable, convenient digital content. So you can think about how individuals or small businesses or folks who might not have the kind of resources to create things now suddenly do have these resources. And we're seeing this in art space where some really cool art is being created and some amazing projects. So for example, one of my favorites, it's called Salt. You can find it on Twitter and it's a, I guess a sci-fi film that's completely AI generated. So voices have been AI generated, images have been AI generated, the plot, you know, the, the dialogue is AI generated. And this is all being created by one person online uh, for fun and being posted, you know, in small increments. And that would have not been possible without this. Equally, there's other benefits. So thinking about how this could be used for people with severe disabilities. Mm -hmm. So a company respeacher in the last couple of years have been thinking about how to use this to help people who have had speech impediments or things like larynx cancer to be able to use audio synthetic media to have their voices again and be able to communicate, which is huge. You can think about how this kind of tech could be used to support the visually impaired 
to describe the world around them as they're interacting with it. There's a lot of really wonderful ways this tech could be used to help people. But of course, the issue here is equally this tech can be abused, you know, yeah. and the easier it is to use this tech, the more con more convincing these, this kind of media becomes, the harder it is to address those types of abuses. So it's in many ways a double-edged sword. Right, right. Yeah, the technology could be used for, for good or for bad. I also often when I hear about AI-generated content, especially related to ChatGPT, I hear worries that companies will use these technologies not just to create new value or create new content, but also to cut costs, and specifically when it comes to labor or jobs. Have you seen examples of these AI-generated deepfakes actually impacting people's work, or is this a trend do you think might become more prevalent in the future? So I definitely think it's still early days. So there's no real hard data on it yet, mm. but I definitely think this is a real issue. It's a very realistic fear. And we're seeing this particularly in the art world with the use of all this, this text image AI, like software like Stable Diffusion or Mid Journey or Dolly, where these models, you know, ingest a huge amount of art and images. And then, you know, you can create these prompts and say like, I would like a dog riding a hot dog and then it will create that. Or I want the dog, writing a hot dog in the style of possible, and we'll do that. And a lot of artists are very rightfully concerned that because all this data that's ingested has been their, ingested has been their art, that they no longer will be commissioned for their work or people will instead go, well, why would I bother to hire an illustrator to do something when I can go in and, you know, in 10 minutes create something that might not be like, you know, it's high quality or as well. I would get if I had an artist do it, but you know, in 10 minutes, it's pretty decent and that's really what I want. And so I don't need to hire anyone for that. And so that's definitely a big concern in the art world. Actually, there was a class action lawsuit filed at the beginning of March by a bunch of artists arguing that these kinds of softwares infringing your copyright directly and vicariously by using their artwork as training data to produce these new images when really it's pulling inspiration from their work. Yeah. We're also seeing increasing discussion of this in the music world as well. And then obviously with ChatGPT, there's a lot of concerns that people who write for a living for various reasons might be out of a job at some point because mm -hmm. people can use ChatGPT instead of hiring them. Yeah, I can I can definitely imagine how the very fact that algorithms need to scrape so much training data off the internet, whether that's art or written articles or music or videos or, or any of that, I can definitely imagine how that could raise a whole range of concerns, whether that's intellectual property or copyright concerns or data privacy concerns or, or even just ethical concerns about how technology could potentially impact society before we have a clear idea of what might actually happen. Yeah, we're definitely running before we can walk, I think, in a lot of these, a lot of instances. This tech is being used and employed in, in various ways, even though we're not we're not quite sure of the consequences yet. <laughs> so, so what can we do? I mean, maybe just starting with individuals. If I'm a person who uses social media or enjoys browsing the internet, I mean, I mean, what do I do if I see an image that may or may not be fake? I, I don't know. <laughs> like, is there anything that I can do to protect myself from misinformation or disinformation? So, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and. You know, we're publishing a piece, a policy brief on this 
by CSIS soon, and we discussed this exactly of what can we do? What actions can we take as individuals? What options can or the relevant parties like the tech industry and governments take? And one of our strongest recommendations is that digital literacy is just going to be so important to be able to combat and mitigate the negative impacts of this, of this that synthetic data or yes, synthetic media might have online. And so we talk about how realistic all of this, this synthetic media has gotten. It's unlikely that at, at some point in the near future, just sort of what we would consider the cutting edge tech will be regular tech. But we will see instances of probably obviously identifiable synthetic images or audio. And so I'd say the first step is to assess those, that media, like you know, take a look at it. Does it look strange? Is something off with it? It's a person, does their hair look weird? Does the skin texture look off in some way? Does anything like it look skewed or warped? And then the same for audio, like are there glitches that just don't sound correct? We're gonna play some audio clips as well so, um, to, to share. So you can kind of think about that. For video, does the mouth sync up with the, with the audio in a way that makes sense? Mm -hmm. Do the physics of what's happening make sense, you know? So first assessing that, that media itself, see if it feels off or if it looks good, but you're going, gosh, this really just doesn't make sense. Like why would for a, I'm trying to think of an example here. Like if you saw a video of let's say Kim Kardashian yeah. discussing some very complex physics equation, you'd be like, oh, that's, that's, that's a little unexpected, right? And so I think <laughs> with these contextual cues, and you go, okay, well, why is she doing that? And that's when you look further and that's when we think of this digital literacy piece of going, okay, well, think about source validation. So who's posting this content? Are they a trusted source? Other people trust also posting this. Mm -hmm. Is Kim Kardashian herself posting this? Because that would be a pretty good indicator she is discussing physics. Can we fact check this in a way? Are there other types of media out there? Are there articles about her discussing physics? Trying to just think really critically about the information you're being given, um, mm -hmm. you're being exposed to is gonna probably be the difference in a lot of ways, but just because of how easy, easy it is to create all this, this synthetic media and like the kind of the scale it's gonna be easy to create it at, just, it can't just be us. And so there's a lot of push towards thinking about different types of regulations and other different types of coordinated kind of cross-sector responses that we can engage in in both public and private space to address some of these risks. Absolutely. Especially since, I mean, you mentioned the sheer scale, but I, I do think that there is something to be said for information overload. Just the fact that on a daily basis, the average internet user will interact with, I don't even know how many hundreds or thousands of posts and photos and news flashes. So it's, it's just, it's a lot. It's very hard as a, as an individual, just to be able to tell like what might be fake and what's not, especially since, I mean, I mean, most people only look at social media posts for what just a very short period of time yeah I think the average is two to five seconds maybe which is crazy but it makes sense when you think about just the sheer amount of information you're being exposed to day in day out and yeah I know it's a huge issue and the, the one of my personal biggest concerns is that digital literacy is is crucial it's a vital part of being able to deter mitigate the risks of the malicious use of media but that. I guess my my worry is that the response then becomes, well, that's all we need to do, which it really, really isn't. As you said, it's just we can do the best we can as, as digital consumers, but there's just so much information out there that it is very, very hard to keep track of. And a lot of us become increasingly exposed to the first thing, first time on thing on about you know, 
things on, on social media. So for example, Pope Francis and Balenciaga, that having any kind of context or understanding ahead of time is really, really difficult. And so this is why we really need AI companies, tech industry, social media platforms to get more actively involved in coordinating some sort of response to, to dealing with this. I want to pick up on that. So I know you mentioned regulation earlier, and I want to touch on that. But first, technology companies. So whether these are the developers that are generating these AI programs or social media platforms or any other company that potentially touches upon this, this issue, what can companies do to promote the spread of reliable information and mitigate some of the harms that could result from AI-generated content? So that's a great question. And there's a lot of different things we can do. The issue is that a lot of them need to work in concert together. And a lot of these different parties need to, to work together. And that's that's really hard to do, especially when especially in the Western world, there's been a lot of push for sort of self-regulation within companies. And so there's there's very little existing legislation that can be leveraged to, to push for this. And it means that it's very much, in some ways, an honor system. Mm -hmm. So what we've been seeing with some of these AI companies that create like media, there's been a whole variety of responses. Unfortunately, most don't really think or address um, how their tech can be used in ways that could harm others or don't really have the capacity to do that. So for example, there's a company called Synthesia, creates digital avatars. So they basically take the faces and voices of existing people and are able to manipulate and puppet those to create videos saying anything they want. And it's primarily used for business. And so thinking about like HR videos or training videos. Mm -hmm. But recently, I think in January, it was found that some of these videos or some of these, this, I guess this tech was being used for disinformation purposes to create inflammatory videos, pro-China policies or pro-gun policies. And in response, so Synthesia obviously, kind of when they realized what was going on, cut off the, I guess the accounts that were doing that, but they're, they're like, well, we don't really have enough personnel to keep track of this and, and identify what's going on here. And so you've got that, that's an issue for sure. And only if a handful of these companies are thinking about how can they, for example, use AI to embed things like digital watermarks in their tech, make it easier to detect when, it, when people pull across it. And equally, you know, these companies aren't talking, for example, to social media platforms to say, here's, for example, our digital watermark. You can use this to scan or monitor images or videos or audio that's being uploaded. It's a, it's a huge process, you know, and it takes a lot of coordination. But at the, unfortunately, the incentive to do that right now is, is very low. And there's much more incentive to create all of this kind of stuff. And again, this comes back to there's the Silicon Valley gold rush going on right now, where there's a big push to invest in create this tech as fast as possible and become the leaders in this, but there's very little incentive to think about how we do this more slowly, you know, in ways and make it safer and harder to use for malicious purposes. Right. Especially in the United States, technology is just moving so much faster than the law is. And the reality is many technology companies are very underregulated when it comes to things like online safety or artificial intelligence. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? What is the role of government in regulating artificial intelligence deep fakes? Yeah, so I think there, there's a huge role for government. You know, there's been 
but especially again in the U.S., there's been a lot of struggle with how do we implement this. Mm-hmm. There's been a number of bills and acts forward, haven't really gone anywhere because there's a lot of concerns around how if we regulate, you know, synthetic media, could that how could that impact free speech rights, and how could that potentially impact the beneficial or really neutral uses of this technology? Unfortunately, you know, there hasn't been much discussion beyond that. Mm-hmm. Looking beyond the U.S. We go to, for example, the EU with their, with their AI Act, and they've really struggled to address this. So thus far, I think the most recent draft of the AI Act, any kind of regulation around concerns about deep fakes have been watered down extensively. And there's some discussion around transparency requirements, but I think there's a, an exception clause for art or satire or entertainment, which you yeah. can see that's a huge loophole there. Yeah. That can be really easily exploited. Conversely, I guess China has had much more comprehensive approach to regulation there and has engaged in much more stringent requirements accountability about what's being shared online and you know, transparency around what's what's synthetic, what's not, and much more substantial regulations around things like synthetic media. And has so while there's been a lot of issues of even getting started with regulation, strictly that have approached it in the West, you know, China's been kind of in the opposite direction. Yeah. Where they have had much more comprehensive, extensive regulations. But equally that does bring up concerns of free speech, that brings up concerns of could information that's actually real and authentic be labeled as synthetic if it's dissenting with sort of mainstream sensibilities. And that brings up its own issues as well. Like how do we even implement all these really comprehensive regulations? How do we hold people accountable? How do we track people down? That's a, that's its own set of concerns. And so I would say those are probably the two extremes. But no, I definitely think government has a big role played in thinking about how to coordinate some sort of cross-sector response in the public spaces as well. And I think if we don't do this sooner rather than later, we're going to end up with not only this tech being used everywhere, but having been used everywhere for so long, it's really impossible to reverse or redirect in, in a meaningful way. We've got this window of opportunity now where this is possible and thinking more meaningfully about using this technology can be done and can be implemented. So hopefully we do have some sort of meaningful regulation sooner rather than later. Yeah, and it, it's super interesting, like you mentioned, how just different both cultural norms and also legal standards around free speech and free expression can affect how governments deal with deep fakes or disinformation. And I mean, I mean, like you said, it's it's definitely not an easy issue because on one hand, we don't want people to be able to create deep fake intimate imagery or to be able to weaponize deep fakes to hurt people. But on the other hand, like you said, in many countries, like in the United States or the UK or the EU, and it's not illegal in many cases to express satire or to express opinion or humor. And of course, it's also extremely important to uphold these, these principles of free speech and free expression. So I can imagine that there are cases when the two, these two principles can potentially come to tension with each other. I wonder as well, just because online content is something that doesn't really have borders. If I post something in the United States, there's a good chance that people, you know, all around the world are going to see the content that I post. I wonder if it, if there's an opportunity for government, not only to coordinate between companies, but also 
to open up some sort of international dialogue on how to deal with just deep fake content. I, I guess I'm thinking of an example in a book I read by a University of Virginia law professor, Danielle Keats Citron, about a non-consensual intimate imagery website, which is, of course, very privacy invasive, very harmful. It was actually taken down in the EU because it violated privacy laws there. But the same website then resurfaced in Las Vegas because the United States just doesn't have the same privacy protections. And the reality is, if content is either taken down or kept up in one nation, that's going to affect what people in other countries see as well. Have you seen any international efforts at um, at least countering or discussing these values of both free speech, but also countering disinformation? And do you, do you think that there is a forum for this type of dialogue to happen? So at the moment, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how the sort of coordination and harmonized response is important and essential. There hasn't, haven't been really any concrete moves towards addressing, addressing this. Yeah. Know, unfortunately, because I, I agree, you know, we could have, you could have really great comprehensive, but also well-balanced regulation, for example, in the U.S. That doesn't mean much if the rest doesn't have that. So I agree. I think there's definitely a need for international dialogue between countries by international organizations like the U.N., for example. Yeah. But you can see like the struggle, for example, that's going on right now within the EU thinking of the AI Act. And I think the struggles they're having are really indicative of what these broader similar struggles we'd face more right. globally. But I do think addressing that is going to be a key part of trying to figure out how to mitigate risks arising from the use of synthetic media, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that these conversations aren't easy, especially since, like you said, there are also potential benefits to AI-generated content and synthetic media. And at the same time, I mean, content moderation, it's a pretty politically charged topic, I mean, we've seen in the United States, for example, controversy around initiatives like the Disinformation Governance Board, which was meant to be a working group to explore disinformation, but Uh I guess due to a, ironically, a disinformation campaign, a lot of people online thought that this was actually going to be a censorship group. So it's, it's definitely, it's not, it's not an easy topic to address, that's for sure, but a very important one. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's it's very tricky to to address. It's one of the reasons, especially in the U.S., a lot of regulation I don't think has moved forward because of this. And so, trying to figure out how we can still engage in in something that's in regulation is going to meaningfully address you know the malicious uses while also you know being cognizant of how it can affect you know free speech and individual rights is definitely going to be a crucial balancing act forward. Absolutely. I guess my my last question, back to this, back to this deep fake video example. I remember about a month ago, Meta was running ads for a face swap app that was being used to target female celebrities like Emma Watson and Scarlett Johansson. And after mm-hmm. after being contacted by reporters, Meta did take down the ads for this app. But are are we? Do you think we're just playing whack a mole here? I mean, there are so many companies that are developing AI and offering these apps, which are many of which are either free or very very low cost and just available to almost anybody who wants to purchase them. It, do you think? there is 
there is a way to create long-term comprehensive, like a comprehensive approach, or are we just taking down the bad actors as, as they're revealed? Yeah, I definitely think whack-a-mole is a good way to describe it right now. It's very reactive and there's very much reliance again on the digital consumer to raise the issue, mm-hmm. which as we were saying, is just not going to be feasible and doing the amount of information being shared online, the amount what we're exposed to every day, limited amount of context we might have as digital consumers to identify if it's real or fake and just how good it's getting. So there's definitely ways that we can more actively address this. You know, there, there's a lot of research going on in machine detection right now. A lot of issues with machine detection where not really necessarily keeping up with detecting synthetic media technology is not keeping up with creating synthetic media technology, but that doesn't mean that tech can't be helpful or effective in some way. And if social media platforms employed that kind of technology preemptively to scan, you know, whatever media is being uploaded, that could have a big impact on, it wouldn't, I don't think it would catch everything, but it could catch, it would probably catch a decent amount of information. And also just knowing people that the tech is being used could deter many from even employing or creating deepfakes in the first place. You know, there, there is a lot of, there are a lot of possible solutions. So like, you know, one solution could be thinking about having some sort of coordinated database to where people could load potential deep fakes and those could be reviewed by technical experts to see if they're real or fake, coordinate responses between social media platforms, dialogues between platforms and tech companies. You know, there's a lot we could be doing. It's just, it's uh, incredibly hard to incentivize companies to do this proactively, which is why we're very much seeing this much more passive reactionary response at the moment. And so again, this is where I think government legislation could come into play to really help push for more accountability and responsibility of parties who are involved with the creation and dissemination of public media across Absolutely. the online space. Absolutely. And it all it all starts with just understanding the problem in the first place, which is why exactly. I'm very, very glad that you are looking into this issue here at CSAS. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And and again, then it comes back to this digital literacy piece where we all have a better understanding of what kind of tech is out there, how good it's getting. That means it's we have a better view of, of how we could possibly address it. And not just yeah. digital consumers, but thinking about policymakers in Congress or in the EU, thinking about companies and getting better to know how this tech can be maliciously used. That's definitely a, you know, a key part of first step to addressing this. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, now in 2023, society has just shifted online. Like we go to work, we go to school, we do conduct social activities online. So digital literacy, like you said, that is a, a first step. Thank you so much, Di, for joining us today on the This Does Not Compete podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Before we conclude today's episode of This Does Not Compute, we wanted to leave you with these examples of AI-generated audio clips. I knew how Stanley felt when he found Livingston, how Hannibal felt when he crested the Alps and saw Carthage. Age, and he's always pushing the envelope in innovation. Like, for example, with his next... 过了一会儿，白雪公主慢慢地开始呼吸了。Splash has developed an AI that can sing in a variety of different voices and styles. This is how it sounds today.